Hello, everyone watching. Uh, I apologize for the long hiatus. I know this is much anticipated. <laughs> um, I would like to start the episode with a land acknowledgement, as we are on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, the Tsleil-Waututh, and the Squamish First Nation. I think it's really important to uh, understand where we're at. So um, I just I just like to get started nice and easy. I got a lovely guest today, my surprising surprising friend Jody. Hey Ben. Hello, hello. Uh, how how have you been today? Uh, I've been good. I guess it's been a. I don't know, domestic morning? Domestic morning. Some, some <laughs> coffee. Get, get some coffee, getting the recycling back in, all that sort of thing. And now we're here, shooting nice and early. This is definitely the earliest I've done one of these. Um, so I, I, I want to jump straight into it. I've been watching your lectures a little bit. Okay. You've got some on Vimeo, that's correct? Right. You can find them at Lo- Jody. Lots of them. Jody Baker. Jody Baker. At Vimeo. Shout out. Go subscribe to him. He's great. <laughs> so um, I, I would love... To, to just dig into coolness. Okay, sure. Um, so, so why do we value cool, and what are its ideological foundations? Well, I, I think there are three elements to cool. Um, there's um, alienation, because I think cool is one of the ways we deal with alienation from modern society, I guess you would say. Um, and it can be alienation from specific things or just modern society in, in, in general. And I think uh, cool is also requires a process of appropriation. And that's what cool is for. Uh, cool is the means by which we appropriate from countercultures. Um, and it's not we necessarily, but um, how ma- mainstream culture needs cool. Mainstream culture needs cool because they can appropriate that coolness. And what they're really appropriating is not so much cool, because I don't think cool really exists. It's these three things that make up cool. Uh, But what they really want, what cool really provides, is authenticity. And authenticity is, and I'm sure we can spend some time talking about authenticity, but authenticity is really, I think, the key to it all, that that's what cool provides. But authenticity is only valued in a a cultural context of alienation. And that coolness... Uh, that authenticity can only um, emerge as it's appropriated, right, from authentic individuals or authentic places or other sources of authenticity. And that, so I think that's what cool provides is really those, it provides authenticity and it requires those three things. It provides authenticity. All right. So uh, kind of on the opposite of cool, do you think there's anything to be said for warmth? Would there, would there be an opposite for warmth? For warmth. Oh, for warmth. <laughs> uh, absolutely, yes. Um, and I, I guess, does, does cool preclude warmth? I'm not so sure. But um, uh, of course warmth. Um, I certainly value warmth. And, and I value connection. And, I, and I, I guess I haven't really thought about how cool might work in terms of those sorts of human needs and those sorts of uh, very human connections. Um, but those are the things I value. And I certainly value them more than being cool. Okay. Uh, which may be, which may be more speaks more to my age um, and being a parent uh, and all those other things, which shifts your value away from trying to be cool and I guess yeah trying to connect with people. That's true. And I and I'm not sure con- and I'm not sure cool is a great way to connect with people. No, well, especially if it uh, precludes you being different from everyone. Right. Trying to trying to be alienated in a way. Right. So yes. I, right. I guess I guess warmth could be. 
in a way connection and trying to find similarities between right. people instead yeah. of trying to stand out just on your own. Right. Sure. Also, shout out, shout out to Nina. I know she'll be watching this. <laughs> Very keen. Shout out to Nina. Big shout out. All right. Um, so as, as a society, why do we value individuality and authenticity? And, and do you think that's changed a lot over the last few generations? Uh, it only emerged in the last few generations. Um, I think authenticity, um, authenticity is a myth, first and foremost. Um, it's an ideological framework. Um, and authenticity is a response to uh, the modern condition. Authenticity can't exist without inauthenticity. You can't have authenticity if you, unless you have the fake, unless you have the phony, unless you have the inauthentic. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. What are you measuring authenticity against but simply inauthenticity? So there has to be that inauthenticity for authenticity to be relevant. And this is just true of anything. I mean, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. Uh, you, you can't have warmth without cold, right? Yeah. You can't have a wave without a trough. And you can't have authenticity without um, inauthenticity to measure it against and to respond against. And our culture, our world, is filled with the inauthentic. And it's been filled in the inauthentic since the turn of the last century with the development of mass production. And what mass production does is it creates mass-produced goods, which are all the same. They're, they get pumped out of the same factories, out of the same machinery. And, and in order to be um, economically viable, every unit has to be similar or the same. Otherwise, production can't be efficient. So over the, And this has changed with, um, the, I think, the production process has changed somewhat in, in the last few decades in order to, to address that, this very issue. First, uh, what is it? Um, um, uh, uh, what's the? I just heard it today. Um, you know, like really fast, responsive production. Mm. Um, like mass production. Uh, no, I mean like mass production now. Uh, factories now are able to produce um, minor changes really quickly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you the Converse is my favorite example of that, right? Like, there's the basic Converse sneaker. That has been cool for decades and decades. Black and white, high top, low top. When I grew up, that's what you had. Black and white, high top, low top. You had to choose between. So there were what, four different models, right, that you could choose between. Um, now there's uh, uh, lots of different styles. And, those, and, and factories, the production process has been adapted to accommodate those quick changes and uh, a, 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 a vast array of, of various models. Yeah. But it is that mass production. It is that everyone's Levi's is the same as your Levi's. It's that everyone's Converse is the same as your Converse. So we live in this mass-produced world. And that mass production and the fact that we are surrounded by commodities and goods that are all exactly alike leads to, I don't want to say crisis so much, but leads to social anxiety. It leads to angst. Because it feels like we live in an inauthentic world. And so we then begin to value the authentic. But 200 years ago, before mass production, nobody, I, I can't imagine, I mean, I don't know, I didn't live then, but I can't imagine people worried about authenticity. When you had your clothes made, you went to the tailor, you, 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 know, you chose, I guess you chose a design, they measured you up, they made you a suit, you wore that, you had that one suit, maybe if you were rich, you had two or three. 
you wore that one suit until it wore out. And it was fit for you. There was never... And it, was, it was fit for you and you weren't concerned about whether or not the label was correct or whether it was a knockoff or... I mean, that, that those concepts wouldn't have occurred to anyone 200 years ago. If you, had, if you had a dress made, you went to the dressmaker, you picked out your fabric, you picked out your model, whatever was in style at, you know, that year, mm-hmm. and you had a dress made. Uh, and you wore that dress until, I don't know, you couldn't wear it anymore for one reason or another. You only had a few of them. Yeah. So those uh, music was produced on your front porch. It was produced, you know, in the local halls. There, there, there wasn't a record industry. There wasn't a celebrity industry. You know, you music was produced locally. It was produced by people you knew. You went to see it. You enjoyed the music. You were not concerned whether or not they were lip syncing, whether or not they were sellouts, whether or not all those things that were concerned. Yeah, yeah, or, or hating on someone because they were on the top fifty for so right, long, exactly. or wanting to have a weird and unique music taste. Right, exactly, or whatever. exactly. So um, people just enjoyed music. They weren't concerned with the authenticity of that music because authenticity wasn't a question because there wasn't a music industry to provide us with the inauthenticity that we need to respond to and react against. So authenticity is a product of mass production. I shouldn't say authenticity. Well, authenticity itself, the myth of authenticity, our concern for authenticity, and believe me, I participate in this. I I, I can say... I think we all do. Yeah, we do. I I value authenticity. I I absolutely do. Right. But but, uh, at the same time, maybe there's some cognitive dissonance there. I recognize that it's simply an ideological framework. Yeah. And I always say, and I, it's, these aren't my words, but authenticity is always a matter of codes. Authenticity is produced by the codes and conventions of representation. Authenticity is, is a process. Authenticity is a way of representing a pair of jeans, a way of presenting the self, the way music is presented, right? That is what creates authenticity. There's no, there's nothing behind, there's no, no reality behind that mythology. There's no, oh, that's really authentic and that really isn't authentic. I don't think, any, I, I would never argue that this music or that music is, is or is not authentic. That this pair of pants or that pair of pants is or isn't authentic. authentic. That's not the question. The question is not whether or not something is or isn't authentic. The question is, what is authenticity and how is authenticity produced? How is it that we come to value that authenticity? Ah, I see, I see. That's an interesting question to ask yourself. Um, I, I feel like a lot of it has to do with meaning. A hundred percent has meaning, to do with meaning. Meaning we put onto things. So I'm, I'm right. really, I'm curious, how do you sell a mass produced product to an authentic individual? <laughs> uh, you, uh, well, advertising, branding, marketing. That's what it does. And if you look at big brands, Coke, Pepsi, Levi's, Converse, Nike, you name it. What, what do they do? This is the process of appropriation. They go out into the world. They find authentic things, authentic people, authentic events, authentic practices. And they appropriate that authenticity and they attach it to their mass-produced goods. And then the mass-produced goods can also have marks of authenticity upon them like a pair of Levi's is carefully torn to provide that authenticity, right? Yeah. Um, the label, which has a long history of, in the case of Levi's, other brands don't have this, but, uh, some brands do. They, uh, Levi's has a long, long history of providing workwear to workers. We you know, we tend to forget that it was miners who first started wearing Levi's 
it was farmers who first started wearing Levi's. They were called dungarees because they were used to shovel dung. They were used to shovel, shovel cow shit and horse shit. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. And when I grew up, they weren't called jeans. They were called dungarees. Dungarees. It was 60s youth culture that changed the name of Levi's to jeans. Huh. My father had the first pair. He claimed that he had the first pair of Levi's dungarees in New England or in his town in New England. And he went out to Montana. He worked on a ranch. The first thing he did before he went is bought some work clothes. You had to have work clothes. And the work clothes at the local store was Levi's. As Carhartt's, right? I mean, Carhartt's now is becoming it's marketing its authenticity. But, you know, Carhartt's 10 years ago. It was work uh, clothes. It was work clothes. And yeah, absolutely. they were well-made, well. And it's, and it's no surprise to me at all that Carhartt suddenly becomes the cool thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of funny that this, like, traditionally work culture, like, item suddenly becomes super valued by, <laughs> by skateboarders and stuff just because it does go right, against the culture right. in that way. Exactly. And hip hop and prison clothes. I mean, that's and it. All of that is to appropriate authenticity from work, from masculinity, uh, from the experience of being African-American in racist America. And so these brands can draw upon those sources of, 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 of authenticity. They can appropriate that authenticity and attach it to the mass-produced goods in order to make those mass-produced goods appear to be authentic. Yeah, even though it's the same million, even though it's million same, one pairs right. of Levi's exactly. always made. So exactly. it's, a, it's just transferring the meaning over. Right, that, and that is what advertising is. That is what an advertisement is. Advertising is not a means to convince you to buy something. Advertising hasn't been like that for decades and decades and decades. That's not what advertising does. If advertising was trying to convince you of something, Right? You would respond. How would you respond? When you, when you, got, you get an inkling that this ad is trying to manipulate you into buying something, how do you, how do you respond? Well, probably the exact opposite of what it's exactly, trying to do. Exactly. And, that's, and, and advertisers are smart. They know that. Right? So that's not what advertisers do. Advertisers work within what you already believe, what you already think, what you already know to be true. And they just give that back to you. They have to appropriate from what's already there. Advertisers, advertisers do not make meaning out of thin air. They don't, put, they don't jam meaning into your brain, right? They can't do that. What they do is they draw on the culture, and the ad itself is a means to translate and transfer, and these aren't my words, translate and transfer meaning onto goods, which are essentially meaningless. There's a, a pair of Levi's. We're on Levi's now. That's fine. Pair of Levi's jeans is it's denim pants. Yeah, you, has has no meaning. You could, right? you could it has a, has a use, and the use might be you know it might have great use value. Um, it might be rugged. It might be fitting. It might look good. It has all those things. Okay, but but uh, that's not meaning. That, that's use. So it has to be given meaning, and it, and it can draw on the well fitting as for for its meaning too. So what an ad does is it transfers meaning from the culture and from the world out there pre-existing meaning they don't make it up and then they translate it transfer it over to the goods and so an advertisement is just a machine it's a meaning machine and it's a means by which you can transfer meaning between the world and goods or from goods in the world it can work both ways so that's all it is it's a switching station for meaning it's an it's a, it's a empty space where meaning passes through and is, you know, reworked and then spit back out onto the goods. Yeah. It's to make inanimate objects mean something to us in human terms. 
That's what that's all advertising is. It's not a mean to convince us. It's not a mean. To, it's not a way to get into our head. It's a way for brands and their products to participate in our culture and to attach meanings that you and I already believe. Right? Do you believe in that families should be bound together by love? Uh, in an idealistic sense, sure. Sure, sure. And Quaker Oats does too. Right? Yeah, of course. Right? Do, or, uh, do you believe, are you proud to be a Canadian? I mean, maybe not right now. <laughs> Weird times. I'm not the proudest to be a part of any big government, but I would say of any country in the world, right. we're, we're doing pretty good. Yeah, and, and, and you, you have, you know, you, you Canadian vows of community, of family, those sorts of things, we, right? There are certain things we're proud of to be Canadian. Yeah, we're, right? we're the we, kaleidoscope or whatever, sure, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, multi-ethnic. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, sure. Good health care. I mean, there's, the there's, lots, there's lots to hate in Canada, <laughs> particularly right now. But there's also lots to love. Guess what? Tim Hortons <laughs> values that too. They value that with, with you. And they invite you to come to Tim Hortons and express those values, live those values, as you enjoy a cup of inanimate coffee. You're, you're, in a, in a you're double-double. You're double-double, exactly. Yeah. And double-double then becomes a symbol of being Canadian. Of course, that's right? such a Canadian thing. Exactly. It's, it's so exactly. iconic. Everyone does their Timbos right. and, runs. And, and so that's when brands win, is when they draw upon Canadian culture, attach it to their goods, and they do that long enough and hard enough that the goods then begin to represent Canada. Canada and all the values, and, and Canadian, it's Canadian values, right? Uh, and, and, it, and so double-double represents Canadian values. And believe me, it takes a lot of work, money, and skill to make the double-double become iconically Canadian. That, that's work. Yeah. That's expensive. That's millions of dollars. And years and years. And of years and years. Exactly. Just, just putting it out there. Right. Levi's. You can look at Levi's, uh, Nike. I like the example you gave of Converse, but uh, with the, the shoes that you can design yourself. And right. it's the same thing with Vans. I know there's a lot of other companies that do this, but it's a mass-produced shoe that you can put your own designs yes, on. Yes, exactly. exactly. And, and that, that, in a way, makes it authentic because you're going to have your own right. pair. Right. That's a little bit different than everyone else's. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we value. That's another one of our values. Do you value you, your unique sensibilities i would say so yeah. yeah do you value that you are a unique individual yeah do you recognize that not all cultures at all times had those same values absolutely absolutely but those are our values i hold those values dearly guess who else holds those values everyone else here <laughs> yes and converse converse holds those values and in fact they provide those values for you in the in the in the, in the form, shoe in the in the shoe in the form of a product that's that great. is uniquely yours. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm personally a Vans fan, but nothing yeah, against well, Converse. That, you pick, but, pick, pick your brand. It of course, really matter. that's just me trying thing. to be my own. <laughs> right. But I, I tell you what, the brand, advisors for, the brand advisors for Converse are also working for Vans. So. Of course, they're doing the exact same right. thing, which is funny because they're two trying, trying to make their authentic experiences, right. but they're doing the same thing. And, you know, mm -hmm. I would never criticize you or me for wearing Vans or wearing Converse. And feeling authentic or feeling good in them. Um, I, I don't have any problem with them being comfortable in a pair of Levi jeans. I don't call them inauthentic, right? Because, you know, that, that after what I just said, that makes no sense. Yeah. To criticize someone for being inauthentic. We, all, we live in an inauthentic world. We all, you know, struggle with that. Of course. But um, so it, it, this, isn't a, this isn't at all about criticizing people's choices criticize people's commitments, their values, 
you know, that, that's what people, that's what people have. The point of critique is the way in which brands, corporations, you know, um, um, manipulate the culture. So the brands, Coke, Pepsi, whoever, they're not manipulating us. They're manipulating the culture. They're manipulating the, the entire society. They're creating a consumer culture. They're creating, have created a consumer society. That's the point of critique. It's the ideological work that every ad does. Not, not the, the, the individual psychological work that an ad does. That's not what, what's important because it doesn't happen, I don't believe. What's important is that ads in their aggregate change our culture and reinforce certain values over others. And some of those values I, I, I ascribe to. It's like individuality, the sense of uniqueness, yeah. our sense of freedom, democracy, all those things I believe in. And guess who else believes in those? Air Canada. <laughs> of, of course. So it, it, it's all, all just trying to, to make us value authentic experience. No, they don't make us do anything. You already value, you value unique it. experience. So, so why, why? They don't make you do any. If you, if, if you thought for a moment they made you do something, you, you would reject it. it. Of course. But right. I, I feel like that's on um, the culture and the counterculture as well. You want to appropriate that coolness and yes, alienation. Absolutely. And when right. someone tells you to do right. something, you're like, no. The mainstream depends on the counter counterculture. Absolutely. Okay. Let's just like, you, the, why, why does the counterculture exist? It exists in order to provide authenticity through the process of appropriation to large corporations. Right? Yeah. So, I, and I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't be a member of the counterculture, but you just have to understand that you can't have mainstream culture without counterculture. You can't have authenticity without inauthenticity. You can't have mainstream culture without counterculture. Mainstream culture feeds on counterculture. And that's the, that's why there's an obsession with youth in advertising and branding and marketing. It's not because young people are prettier, although they are. It's because youth culture continually renews itself. There's always a new style on the street. Yeah. Right. And, and there's always going to be people counterculturing the counterculture, which That's becomes right. popular. It's right. the cycle that, <laughs> exactly. that just feeds right. itself. It feeds itself. Right. And guess who needs that more than anyone else? Brands, big, yeah, big corporations, so they can appropriate the next new style, and they're and they you know this is speaking from the nineties I guess, but they you know there is a job called cool hunters, cool hunters, cool hunters, yeah. Would, would that just be people going around being yeah like, people go around hang out cool. the state park check out the tattoos look at what the kids are wearing and then they go back to their big brands and say here's what the kids and they do a little presentation. Hey, the kids are wearing cut-off jeans. We better start selling cut-off jeans. Go talk to some skateboarders and Carhartts sure. or whatever. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, I'm 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 curious as to what makes us value authentic experiences. Is there is there anything, in 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 particular? I, I guess we've already covered that in in no, in, I, I in think the binary of trying to not be. Inauthentic. I think that we have experiences. We crave experiences. I, I'm sure you're a rock, you're a rock climber. Do all sorts of stuff. Yeah, so why do you, I, I do those kinds? I go out kayaking. Why do I do that? Why do you do that? Because it, it, it is, it is, um, it is a, a very valuable experience. It, it, it puts you in the moment. It puts you in the present, right? You, you're just focused on, on the climb. You get into the, the, the flow that they talk about now. Yeah, flow right? or zone. You get in the zone, you get in the flow and it, and you feel more human. 
rock climbing, you know, than you do at school or at home or whatever, right? You feel more human and you feel great. And that's, and that, and it feels authentic. It feels real. It feels like this is what it means to be human. Yeah. It gets you out of your head. It It gets you out of your head. Right. And we all value those experiences and that's all fine. And I, and so what was the, what was the original question? Well, well, why do we value these authentic experiences? Well, I think that's, I think it's, it's, it's physiological, it's also cultural. It also gets us away from, you know, urban life, which is, you know, stressful and noisy and all those things. And so we seek authentic experiences. I think I seek authentic experiences in my kayak and it's only authentic when I get away from everybody else. I have to go to the, I have to go to the other side of Vancouver Island to find my solitude. You have to purchase your, you have to pay for your solitude with a lot of driving time, right? Yeah. And I value that solitude and I don't mind seeing other kayakers and stuff like that's fine. A little bit of a community. Sure. And, and I, you know, I've, I've gotten over myself here. It's like, I don't, if, if it's my vacation isn't ruined, if I run and encounter another human being. (laughs) What it used to have been. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. To to some extent you you go into Algonquin park and it's like, you always complain, oh, the park's getting so crowded and I couldn't find a campsite because someone else was camped there and all these other people. And it's like, come on, like. They're all doing the same thing. They're all doing the same thing. And like, you hate other people. Is that what, what I'm hearing? So, um, do it's I all hate about other the people? alienation? No. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I, I get that we want to escape modern life and find these experiences that, that take us out of our, you know, our oppressive, the kind of stressed out, anxious ridden selves that we seem to experience in modern life. The, the gray state of just the, the, the urban, urban life. Right, a little exactly. Bit. And so, and, and so, and all that's great. Right. But at the same time, we have to recognize that all that has been swept up into consumer culture. Cause when I go kayaking to find my authentic experience in the wilderness, it, I cannot do it without first going shopping at mountain equipment co-op Definitely to get the gear, right. To be safe. I have to go buy a $500 radio now, you know, your VHF to, radio, to, to get a safe. license for it. Got to get a license for it, right? Mm-hmm. That's $179 and $500 or $400 for the radio. My kayak, I just bought a kayak. It was very expensive. That's right? true. You, you really just skipped ahead to the next question I have okay. written down, which I love, by the way, we're, 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 we're progressing in a very nice way. Um, so I'm, I'm curious how, how we commodify even the outdoors. Also, the other thing, uh, do you think you could move your mic a little bit? Because oh, we've sure. been facing each other. Here, let me, let me, let me. you can kind of just pull it. Ah, okay. There you go. All right. Should be a little bit better. All right. That's better. But um, yeah. So so how how do we commodify the outdoors? Well, the commodity. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. We don't commodify the outdoors. Mountain Equipment Co-op commodifies the outdoors. I mean, I guess we could go out and enjoy the outdoors without. Absolutely. Commodity. You, you, I mean, you can go you for a hike. Go I mean, go go walk with no shoes on and in sure. your underwear, and you sure. you would you'd pay like three dollars or something. Yeah, that's not fun. <laughs> I don't know. Speak for maybe, yourself. Well, maybe it is. Sure, maybe it is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, we can get high and there's that, there's that, that method as well. That's true. Um, to get out of ourselves. Uh, uh, that's a very human thing to do. So, um, I, I, I wouldn't say, I, I guess the, I, I want to read, I don't want to respond to the question of how do we commodify? Oh, that. how, how do the but, outdoors get commodified? Yeah. They get commodified by providing us all with this all nifty gear and it's great gear, you know, and, so it, and, and, it, and it's, it's, I love the gear. You know, I almost, if it weren't for my fear of heights, I would get into rock climbing because rock climbing has the best gear ever. 
I don't know about that. Oh, yeah. All those little wedges you put in the rocks and the clippy things and the little the bits cam. of rope, so, the cams. Yeah, So all that. That's cool equipment. It is, but I would say that um, at least at least from my experience, I'm a bit of a boulder bro, which is... Yeah. Um, right. So free, I, free, free climbing. Free climbing. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't go anywhere above like four meters. If, oh, okay. if I have to do more than like three pull-ups, I'm out of energy. You know? <laughs> it's too much. Do you wear the special shoes? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You can't not. Yeah. Um, so that's what I would, I would say. That's the only gear you really use as a boulder. Right. And they're terrible. They wreck your feet. They're extremely uncomfortable. Really? Oh, yeah. It's, it's dreadful. They look, they look comfortable. They look like soft little slippers that you can grip the, grip the rocks with. Anyway, I don't, like, know, I don't know a damn thing about climbing. It's, so. it's like soft little slippers if they were a Chinese foot binding. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not good for your feet. No, it's really not. Yeah. Um, um, so it's commodified. It is. Like everything is. else in our, everything is commodified. This, the, we live in a capitalist consumer culture society. That's our reality. Everything is commodified. And even the outdoors is commodified. And here's here, here's the here's the trick. There is no outside of consumer culture. There is no outside to ideology, because even our feelings of anti-consumption, even our feelings of oh we're being manipulated. I hate I hate advertisers. I hate brands. Right? Guess who offers that back to us? Guess who offers us that in commodified form? More brands. More brands, right? And if you, wa- you like, start watching ads carefully. And, you know, so many ads are anti-advertising. And they're telling us, oh, you're smarter than that. You get it. You're cool. You're authentic. You, you're you, not fooled by advertising. We're not going to advertise to you, right? But here's our brand who understands you kids who feel alienated from popular culture. Here's our band, right? who, you know, listen to our sound and it doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard before. Yeah. And it fee- and our band feeds into your anti-consumerist, your, your anti-mainstream desires. Totally. The, the, the anti- feelings of anti-mainstream, feelings of alienation, is what revitalized corporate America after World War II. I love the irony in that. Yeah. Well, a contradiction. It's an ideological contradiction. And, and, you know, capital society is riddled with contradiction. <laughs> we live contradict- contradiction every day. And it's important for us to see those contradictions. And that's all I'm trying to do is recognize those contradictions. Yeah. Not to, not to trash people or to tell people that they're listening to the wrong music or anything like that. But it's to recognize that we live in these, this perpetual state of ideological contradiction and when you see the contradiction then that's what gives you power over the ideology right that even your rejection of the ideology is part of the ideological framework and there is no there is no outside mark says people make history but not in conditions of their own choosing we can go all go out and make history but the but we but we live in certain cultural and social and economic conditions and that is a fully developed capitalist consumer culture that's the world we live in. It is, and and there's no out. There's no outside to that. Yeah, we're 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 in this situation, right? So, so so me going off to the wilderness doesn't get me outside of consumer culture at all. No, it. it you're Maybe just, it pulls me deeper in. Well, you you experience a different part of it that's meaningful to you. So I I see a lot of value in sure. that. I don't sure, but um, and I could go to the club instead. Of course, you, you could you could spend your your kayak money on 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 booze and <laughs> sure. uh, or uh, cool outfits, cool outfits and nice car or whatever. Yeah. But uh, I'm a little too old for that. But 
Yeah, I, I could get on a nice car. Yes, I could certainly get a nice car. I get get my Tesla. Yeah, but, drive around in that piece of crap. Foot foot <laughs> foot foot to the pedal to the metal. Get yeah, going. sure. But um, it's it's just what we value personally. Exactly, exactly. And I, I am in no, I am in no, I am in me or anyone else is in no position to judge the choices of others. No, absolutely. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of value in being able to recognize, especially our ideologies and what drives yes. us. It gives yes. us a lot of more power it over does. the decisions. It we is. Make. It is. It, it is. Uh, and I think it's really the, the only real means of empowerment is to begin to recognize how we are all caught up in ideological systems. Even when we seem to be resisting those ideological systems, that resistance is part of a larger ideology. You can't have the wave without the trough. Yeah, it's it's all a part of its right. of, of each right. other. So I'm I'm curious, are there any ways... Uh, for anyone listening, you would recommend them to go about dissecting things or trying to deconstruct this in their own heads? Uh, just pay attention, I think. Just like, I, you know, I, I've been teaching advertising for years and years, and really the, the, the key is to, to really watch, to really pay attention, to watch the ads. Don't tune them out. Don't, don't press that skip ad button on YouTube. Watch the ad and watch it again and watch it again. And watch it again, and things will begin to emerge. And especially if you have a good critical framework that you can work from, and that's, that has to be developed as well. Like you have to be, be able to see things, right? How is authenticity being represented? What are the camera angles? How is shadow used? How is this edited? Yeah. In order to appear authentic. authentic. So go watch a Levi's ad. And it looks like a music video, right? Yeah. Watch how it's cut. Watch how the camera works. Watch how what, what stories are being told. And really, really pay attention. And you will begin to see how it is that authenticity is codified. You'll see the codes of authenticity. And one of the easiest ways to do it is go find a parody, like Fruit of the Loom ads, which may, and there's, a, you know, there's plenty of ads out there um, uh, what is it? Uh, there's a, a British beer that does it. There's a bunch of brands that do parodies of authenticity. And so they give you the codes and conventions of authenticity. Geico does this. Geico. And then they pull, they pull the curtain back. And it's like, oh, it was all a big joke. Oh. And, and, and so you, you can be convinced that you're watching an ad for an authentic product. And then suddenly the product emerges at the end of the ad and it's not authentic at all. Fruit of the Loom does this. There's like, there's this country, there's this beautiful country. There's a, a, a long driveway with chickens on it. There's a front porch. There's a, there's a clothesline, right? These are all the symbols of authentic rural experience. Yeah. And then people start singing and they say, you know, I can't remember what's the line. Um, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no labels anywhere. And it's a sad song. And then there's this band playing and they look really authentic. And, you know, he hits the drum kit and the water sprays up, you know. It's got all the tropes the, and the conventions. Glorious cinematic of, shots. Yeah, exactly. Of like country music. And it's like, well, am I watching a country music video? What am I watching here? And then, they, and then at the end, you realize this is an ad for underwear, <laughs> right? And then you laugh at yourself because you were fooled. And we love to be fooled. We were fooled into believing this is somehow authentic when it wasn't authentic at all. It was all just bullshit. It was all just being, making fun of... And, you, and when you watch those, then you go back and watch it again and say, okay, so how is it that they fooled me? How is it that... And it's very pleasurable, right? How is it that they 
convince me that this was somehow authentic. Was it the splashing water off the drum kit? Was it the raindrops in front of the camera? Was it the black and white? The panning of the clothesline? The panning of the clothesline? Was it the chicken on the road? Right? It was all those things. And you fell for it. And then when and when they, when they when they reveal that you fell for it, then it's fun. Yeah, like, yeah, I fell for that. That was fun. But that's good advertising. That's great advertising. But what it is is it's it's using our alienation from authenticity to sell us underwear. <laughs> I mean, everyone needs underwear. Yeah. But um. So uh, what what was the, what was that question? What was I answering? Um, you, you asked me what. Oh, uh, like why, or or what can people do to kind of like. Uh, I guess. Yeah. So, so that's, yeah. So like watch advertisers will provide you with the material to make you conscious of it. If you, if you look, if you look for it. Yeah. But I I think the thing that people are missing because everyone watches ads all the time is it's the framework to look at it. Right. And we don't watch ads all the time. They kind of just kind of, filter through us it's, it's that kind of like grayed out oh i have to spend right. 15 seconds of my or, YouTube video or you know another this. thing that i used to tell students to do is like go to the car website go to the levi's website and start digging in click on the links click on the links read their stuff read their you know their blurbs watch video after video after video and you will quickly figure out how it is that levi's or 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 carhartt's or Converse creates this big mythology around their brand, around their product. And you just have to like really dig in and watch it and pay attention. And yes, and it's great to have a bunch of critical tools. And there's plenty of books that can provide that yeah. for someone. Actually, one thing I was curious about, uh, you mentioned that at, at some point you said the words, these aren't my words. Um, and I, I'm not necessarily asking you to um, remember who said them, but is there any media books or people that are, uh, would be worth checking out yeah there's lots there's Ardvartsen. there's um if you really want to know how ads work and it's a bit of an outdated book it's called um uh, and I, I won't be able to come up with titles and authors that's okay but you know what i can provide you with a reading list cool i i if, can, if you do i'll can, put it in the description put it in the description please yeah, check it out a nice reading if you're list curious of uh of you know really good central books and there's lots of good books on branding out there um, on brands um, and providing really good analysis. There's there's plenty out there. There's plenty out there. There's a there's a whole, you know, s- field of scholarship around consumer culture studies, which is what I where, where I would locate my work. I see. But um, I can't come up with all the all the titles. I was just like, oh, so it's, it's, it's too many too many titles, too many authors. Very fair. Very fair. Um, before we kind of close the door on this whole advertising communication stuff, um, I, uh, and I guess if you clicked on this video, you probably already know this, but you used to lecture at SFU. Yes, I used to lecture at SFU. Um, you're retired now, right? Yep, I'm retired. So I guess for anyone in, in communications or, or looking, looking to, to go, go into things, who, who would you recommend studying communications for? Are there any like type of people that you find do particularly well or are very keen with well, it? Well, I think, you know, I, I think that, that, um, I, uh, communications is an interesting degree because it doesn't give you a set of marketable skills. It can, and you will come out of it. But communication is one of those fields where you're taught to think critically, you're taught to think well, you learn how to write, you learn how to speak, you learn how to deal with people. Um, and all those skills are good for um, whether you want to do 
PR, whether you want to work for NGOs, um, whether you want to be marketing, um, uh, <coughs> any any kind of any kind of communication job, get any kind of engagement job, yeah. and it's not going to give you a set of um, at least at a, at, a, at a place like SFU, because a place like SFU is going to give you a more theoretical education, and it's not going to give you really practical skills. Although there are programs that do that, like CAT in SFU Surrey, will teach you how to build a website, <laughs> you know, and teach you how to engage with people and and you know how to gamify things. And so um, there are lots of programs that do that. But I think what I, what I and and what I try to teach, and I was never. I never taught people how to do advertising, uh, and I never taught people that they shouldn't do advertise, go into a, you know, pursue a career in advertising. Yeah, I mean it's so valuable. Right, but when they, if they do pursue a career in advertising, and they begin to create ads, they will be able to critically assess their own work. Is my work being sexist? Am I being sexist? Is this is this racist? Is this cultural appropriation? Is it should I be doing cultural appropriation? How am I doing cultural appropriation? What for? How do I represent authenticity? How do I create a sense of realism? What are the codes and conventions that make something seem realistic on a two-dimensional screen? Right? Those are, these are all skills one has to have if one... I'm not going to teach people how to make an ad, but they will be able... You know, the, the nuts and bolts of making yeah, an the, ad. Yeah, the critical thinking right. skills. But they'll be able to see, okay, what kind of stories am I telling? How am I telling that story? How should I tell that story? Okay. I, I, it's it's important, I guess, to be self-critical with that sort of stuff sure, as well. Sure, sure, and it will help you, and it will help you with the job. And I've had I hear stories of students coming back and saying, you know, I got this job in advertising, and I was sitting at a meeting one day, and they showed me this ad, and everyone thought it was a great ad, and I sat back and I said, don't you think that's a little bit sexist? And everyone looked at me like I was crazy, like what did what are you even saying? And they didn't have a clue, they didn't see it, they couldn't see it, you know. It's an important thing to see. Well, because your audience will see it. Absolutely. Damn it. People are going to bash you for it. <laughs> right, exactly. And I mean, you, you, if, if people associate your product, you move the meaning of authenticity, then it's the meaning of sexism suddenly. <laughs> right, right. Or, or you push authenticity a little too far and it seems inauthentic. When you try too hard, that's the thing about authenticity. If you try too hard to be authentic, then you're, you're no not, longer authentic. You're no longer authentic. That's the thing with authenticity is you can't try. You just are yourself. Right, exactly. Yeah. One of the, the funny things. So yeah, I think... This kind of closes the door on okay. um, on the whole conversation I wanted to have about this. All right, that was I, great. I, I love I love what we got into. It yeah. progressed very well. Um, so I, I I would love to dig in a little bit to you actually, Joey. Okay, let's um, get personal. It's getting a little personal. No, that's fine. I like it. Uh, that's something I always aim for on these podcasts. Uh-huh. I love getting to know people. How people kind of ended up where they where they are sure. or like where yeah. they're going. I think that's, well, that's fascinating. A, that's a twisted tale. So. We'll try to get into it. All right. So it's a twisted tale. I want to start at the start. Um, What what was young Jody like? Uh, Do you did you have any aspirations as a child? What was your temperament like? No. Um, I was uh, I was overweight. I was uh, underdeveloped compared to my peers. Yeah. Uh, I had a terrible adolescence. Had a great childhood for the most part. Um, you know, I can remember being nine and how perfect life was at nine. Happy nine-year-old. <laughs> yeah, happy nine-year-old. You're a kid. You don't have a, you know, you, you don't have responsibilities. You don't care. That's you true. Just, you just go out and You're have just fun. Curious about. So the world. I had a good childhood. I had great parents. You know, who, who you know, gave me what I needed, um, and not just physically, but 
emotionally and mentally. So I had great parents who loved me a lot. And I think that, that it's, I grew up healthy. Yeah. That way. Adolescence was a bit hard on me. Um, so what was young Jody like? Uh, young Jody was great until he was about 13. That's when things got a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and I had, I had a hard time making friends cause I, I, I didn't feel like I fit in and, um, I was on my own a lot. I went for years without any friends as a, like at, thir- at 13, 14 into 15. I had one friend, I think between 13 and 15. So I was the fat kid in school. Yeah. Like I was, I wasn't a fat kid. I was the, the fat kid. And we're talking early sixties or mid sixties, mid to late sixties. And so in the, at those times, you know, those people weren't, kids weren't obese at all. Yeah. It was except a very for, different except culture. For me, me and one other kid maybe. Right. So we were the fat kids. So I think that influenced a lot of how I felt about myself and I was terrible at sports and sports is really heavily, I grew up in the United States. I grew up in New England and sports and football, are, you know, really important. Uh, and I couldn't participate in any of that stuff. So yeah, it's very highly valued over there. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think it is important, of course. Um, I guess before we touch on the next question, um, I, I was curious about temperament as in like, um, I guess personality. Do you feel like you've changed a lot as a person over over from no, being I, a, a young person to no, where you are I, now? No, I'm the same person. I'm the same person. All right. I'm a, I'm healthier. I'm more self aware. Yeah, I mean, you're uh, clearly much healthier. Yeah, yeah. very active so now. I I, I I can't regret the past because then it wouldn't have made me who I am today. Exactly. And I'm pretty happy with who I am today. But that just, just comes with age. It comes with wisdom. That's um, true. So I would never want to go back and be young again. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. But I mean, you had those experiences to get you where, where you are here, right? Right. Yes. So that's exactly. that's what's important. So, um, so I I knew you spent some time on a farm. Yes, I did. Um, do, do you do you have anything there that was very influential to you? Any, yeah, any was, big farm stories? It was a huge. Oh, I, have, oh, I have tons of farm stories. Don't get me started on farm stories. Okay, I have one in particular I want to ask okay. about. All right, so we'll, but, we'll get to that. Yeah. But um, so yes, at fifteen, then having lived in a affluent mostly affluent um new england town uh it was at that in those days in the 60s and 70s early 70s it was not really a commuter commuter town for boston it was a little too far away from boston cars went slower then um highways weren't as slick as they are now so driving to boston was a big deal and people just didn't commute there was a train actually that you take you could take from our town to Boston? To Town Square in Andover. So I grew up in Andover, Massachusetts. And right near the Town Square was a train station. And workers could get on the train and train into Boston. And a few a few. I'd imagine it would be a, a, a long ride, though, <laughs> if people weren't even willing to drive it. Uh, well, it was probably an hour commute, which is... And, and to live in Andover was uh, pretty nice. It was nice. It was a beautiful little town. And it was, a, it was a good place to grow up in a lot of ways. We had a bird sanctuary nearby, which was acres and acres and acres of woods we could explore. We had Harold Parker State Forest. So I'm, I'm pulling out the New England accent here. We had Harold Parker State Forest um, to hang around in. We had bikes as kids. We explored. We had a great time. Got into trouble. Started fires. You I mean, know, you gotta. Whatever kids do. We did it. And, um, uh, but I left that to move to the farm in 1974, I was 15 years old. And going from that context to rural Nova Scotia 
was difficult. It was a difficult transition for me. It was an impossible transition for me. And so I didn't do well in high school, socially, or academically, really. I guess I did okay academically, but um, uh, I didn't make the transition well emotionally. I was already in trouble with depression and adolescent issues when we moved. Uh, and that just exacerbated that problem because it just added isolation to on top of, you know, rural isolation on top of it all. However, at the same time, I learned a whole bunch of skills. I could change a bearing and a baler. I could drive a tractor. I could take care of animals. Um, well, I could, you know, create a garden. I, I, I could operate a chainsaw. I could go work in the woods. I could cut firewood. I could split firewood. I got strong. I lost all the weight, extra weight that I had. And I became a, a very competent, confident teenager by the time I was, you know, 18, 19, and up to about 20. So it had done you well in that sense. It did. Yeah, it did. And it, it really it changed the script totally. And so it was a hard transition. It was a difficult transition. I lost a lot of years, but I think in the end I came out better for it. Yeah. I, I still see you value a lot of those things with your work in, in gardens yeah, and, and woodworking. Work, and, and, yeah, I'm and, the, yeah, I, I'm at the, at the Strathcona Community Gardens a lot. I'll be there tomorrow, all day. I, I have some questions about that later. Let's okay, all right. I won't deal with them. Okay. But... Um, at least right now. Um, so uh, this was a recommendation from Nina. Shout out again. Okay. Um, apparently there's a story involving a rooster. Oh, the rooster story. Sure, <laughs> that's my favorite story. So I would love to hear it. Oh, you want to hear the rooster story? You Absolutely. haven't heard the rooster story, have you? I have no idea what it yeah. is. Okay, okay. So um, we had this farm, and there were a lot of animals on the farm. We had all these, and a lot of more kind of pets. We had an ox, and we had a horse that we somehow inherited from somebody who moved away and we got their horse hay burner that's all it was just hang around and got fat we didn't really know how to ride it we wrote i rode it a bit it was just a nice pet he was a sweet 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 soul um and we had cows that we milked and we had sheep and so we had pigs off and on uh and so we had this menagerie of animals in the barnyard and we also had chickens of course we had chickens but but we had two kinds of chickens we had the egg-laying hens who had their own hen house close to our house and I could go out there and get an egg out from underneath a chicken that was still warm take it into the kitchen a big wood stove going big fire in the wood stove cast iron frying pan on that wood stove and I would just put that at three actually three as a growing teenager drop three eggs in that pan you know still warm from the chicken drink swill milk by the gallon from our cows um, and get stronger because I was working so hard yeah so that uh, so those were those chickens, but then there were these other children chickens who were called bant, bantam, or banties, uh, and they're a specific breed of small decorative chickens. They're they're not they lay eggs, but they're not for egg laying. They're not bred for egg laying. They're bred to look gorgeous, and the roosters and the, ch- the roosters look like amazing, big tails, you know, Puffy beautiful chests. translucent feathers, and the females look great. Um, and so my mom went out and bought. Uh, like two hens and a rooster and kind of just let them loose in the farmyard and just sent them on, you know, they just like lived in the barn. But what happens when you have two chickens and a rooster? What happens in two years? (laughs) You get more. Yeah. You have 40 or 50. 50? Oh my God. Of these, of these chickens. And they're not good for laying eggs, right? And they're not good for laying eggs. And what they will do is they will lay eggs and they'll make nests. This is how they get to be 50. Mm -hmm. And then they often build them in the, in the hayloft 
they, they go up into the hay. Hiding away so you can't Hiding find away, them. Hiding away, and then they, they, they get broody, and they sit on their eggs, and then they come out six weeks later with, or four weeks later with chicks. And then there's more chickens, and they go around the barnyard with their, with their chicks. Chickens have a very particular social hierarchy. And uh, there's a hierarchy among, you know, there's a pecking order. Literally. Right? Literally a pecking order. And there are chickens at the top and there are chickens at the bottom. And the chickens at the bottom get beat up. They're the last ones to get to the food bowl, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also divided by gender. And so you have the chickens and then you have the roosters. But only, like a lot of animals, only one rooster is allowed to spread his genetic material to the hens. And he's the boss rooster. And our boss rooster was Mr. Mojangles. Mojangles. Bojangles. Oh, Bojangles. It's, it's, it's a song, Mr. Bojangles. Okay. Uh, that was his name. And he was mean, and he beat up all the other roosters, and he watched over his chickens, and he herded them. If he found food, he'd, he'd call the chickens, and the chickens would run over and get, get the worm he found and eat the worm. He would let them eat the worm. And then he'd call them over and then spread his genetic material Make when, more whenever chickens. he needed to, whenever he yeah. wanted to, when he ever had the urge, he'd always have his chickens to come run to him. So he was a boss rooster. He got to be the boss rooster by superseding the last boss rooster. And they did that with a, with a fight. He, he fought, as many animals do, he fought the other roosters. They're vicious. They're vicious. And they have the spurs on their legs. Terrifying. Yeah, they're terrifying. And they go at it. And, uh, and so this young rooster decided he was going to be boss rooster. Mr. Bojangles decided he was going to be boss rooster. He didn't have a name then. Uh, uh, and he went after the boss rooster and they fought for two days straight. They fought all day long, beat the crap out of each other, went and slept it off that night, went back at it the next morning. And it was horror. It was horrific. And you couldn't stop it. It's just life on the farm. This stuff just happens. Yeah. They're doing what they do. Right. And so finally, Mr. Bojangles won. Right, and he became boss rooster. The other one was literally crestfallen, which is where that term comes from. Yeah, the, his 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 tail drooped. The, you know, the, the cock of the walk. You know that phrase? Like that's the way roosters walk around. They walk with their chest out, their tail up, their comb sticking up. Like I'm the boss. I'm the one. And the other roosters are like, eh, you know, kind of intimidated. Yeah, intimidated, and maybe you know, and if they can get a hand around behind the barn, they'll. They'll do it. They'll course. do it. Sure. I mean, but the if they get caught by the boss seed, rooster, that's, that's why there's always the sneaky ones. Right. Exactly. And it, but they, if they get caught, they get the crap beat out of them by a vicious, <laughs> mean, strong rooster. So that was Mr. Bojangles. He was really mean. So um, and my mom loved these chickens. I hated them because they made a mess and there was chicken poop everywhere in the hay and all this stuff. Um, and uh, so Mr. Bojangles ruled the roost. He was at the top and he would sleep at the highest spot in the barn. That's, that was for him. And some other chickens might be up there, but no other rooster could sit at the highest point. He was always, he slept at the top. Yeah. Up, at, up in the beams. Everyone else had to be down below him. Um, and so it was springtime, and the chickens were having chicks, and uh, animals in the forest were having their children too, having their babies too. And there was a young fox that had just emerged from its den. And it wandered into our farmyard one day and said, oh, my God, look at this. Dinner. <laughs> D- yeah, food, right? Chickens, they're slow. You know, compared to a fox, they're slow. They're easily caught. Absolutely. And uh, he would come in, or she would come in every morning, take a chicken. You'd hear it. It's 6 a.m. on the nose. You hear squawk, squawk, squawk. Everybody's screaming in the barnyard. All the chickens are going crazy. You know, and there's one less chicken. And this was happening every morning. And I said to my mom, I said, 
mom, we, this fox is coming and eating your panties. Do you want me to shoot it? She said, oh, no, don't shoot that fox. Foxes are beautiful animals, and they're just chickens. Like, don't worry about it. I said, okay, fine, don't. And the very next morning, 6 a.m., I hear my mom, Jody, Jody, shoot that fox. Because she, she heard the commotion. She looked out the window. She saw her favorite hen who had a bunch of chicks, and they'll protect the chicks. They'll stand their ground, just stood there. And the fox walked up. Chicken didn't move, protected its chicks. The fox grabbed the hen off into the woods. That was that, right? And so the fox did not fare well. The next morning, the fox did not fare well. I waited for the fox with a shotgun in the barnyard. And that was the end of that young fox. However, now we've got these 12 chicks with no mother. And they're wandering around the barnyard. And they don't know what to do. They don't have someone to care for them. They don't have anyone to keep them warm at night because they go under, you know, the hens open up their wings and the chicken. Yeah, that's why you need incubators if you're. Yeah, exactly. And so they they stay, you know, with the chicken and the chicken finds them food and takes them to water and does everything for them, helps them survive their first few weeks. Mm -hmm. And so here you've got these chins, these chicks with no mother and they're not doing well. And they go from hen to hen trying to find a mother and the hens will have nothing to do with them. They chase them away. It's like, you're not my chicks. I have nothing to do with you. And so this went on all day. The mom was carried off in the morning. And then during the day, these chicks are wandering around lost and hungry. And then at night, they got cold. And we get up in the next morning, and there was, you know, a dead chick in a puddle. Because it wandered into a puddle at night because it didn't have a mother to take care of it. And no one would take care of them. And we're watching this tragedy unfold. And it was really sad. And there was really not much we could do about it. It was like we couldn't really catch them. Uh, we couldn't raise them in the kitchen. This is just going to have to let nature take its let course. Na- let nature take its course and let this tragedy unfold. And it's really sad. And then I was in the barnyard the next day. It was like probably mid-morning. And these chicks are wandering around. And I'm, I'm watching them. And I'm feeling bad and not knowing what to do. And then Mr. Rojangles, he walks up to these chicks. And he looks at them. And he looks at them. And he cocks his head. And then he opens his wings. And these little chicks just went foomp, right underneath him. And he sat down on them. And from then on, this, the meanest, baddest, nastiest rooster became a hen. And he nurtured those, nurtured those chicks. Every one of them survived from them then on. Wow. And he did everything a hen should do. He found them food. He kept them safe. He stopped sleeping in the top thing and stayed at the, at, on the ground, to, to take care in the of straw them. to take care of them. So he would sit down with them at night, as, as hens would do, sit in the straw, down on the ground, kept them warm all night. Wow. And he raised them. And he did a really good job. And then, at one point, the chicks get bigger and bigger. And at one point, it's time for them to be on their own. And Mr. Bojangles looked around, and he I guess I'm done here. My work is done. And he went around. And, and of course, in the meantime, all the other roosters took, took over. So there was another boss rooster. A new pecking order. Sure, a new pecking order because the, there was a void at the top, so everyone's vying to fill that void, and the other roosters just took over. So he went around, and he beat the shit out of every single rooster in the barnyard and reestablished, reestablished his place as boss rooster. Wow. So that's the rooster story. That's lovely, actually. Yeah. And, well, and, and, a and, bit and, sad. And, but... and, well, it's, sure, farm life often is, but... 
Um, you know, the moral of the story is you never look to nature for gender norms. That's true. Right? Because so often that's what happens. That's and, very true. Uh, so I knew appreciation for Mr. Bojangles. Nature just does what it wants. Yeah. I, yeah. I well, and, and nature. What? Um, nature finds a way. That's true. <laughs> well, I like that. He became a warm rooster. He did. Yes. <laughs> and um, he did what needed to be done. Yeah. So now you, you've had this time on the farm. And um, I'd imagine after high school, you started going into college. I didn't finish high school. No? No. So how, I'm a high school dropout. I didn't get past grade 10. Nice. <laughs> so, um, so, so I have a PhD now, but then I didn't have <laughs> past grade 10. So how, how, how did you get a, a PhD as a high school dropout? So where, where have you studied and, and what did your path look like? So I, after, um, I tried a lot of things as a young man at 19, I went out West to Montana from Nova Scotia. Uh, to live with my uncle and we did reforestation surveys so we basically walked around the woods counting trees um, did a lot of hunting and fishing because he was very much a sportsman so I kind of learned those skills I learned how to be a good sportsman sports person I guess you would say now as much as hunting is a sport uh, yeah well yeah sure I mean I would say what you want about hunting we were, we were hunting this is 1979 so um uh, a lot of fishing, hunting, and just working. He, he had worked for the Forest Service and was now a contractor for the Forest Service. So I worked for him, mostly for room and board. That was a really great experience. And I came back to Nova Scotia. My parents then moved to New Brunswick. I went to seamanship school for a while, and that didn't quite work out because of the economy at the time. There were really no jobs at sea. So I didn't get a job on a ship. Um, I wanted to get into boat building, but that didn't work out. Uh... Uh, I ended up moving to Fredericton, New Brunswick. I worked for a farmer there. I worked on a, a really interesting cattle operation that this guy had, um, chasing cows through the woods mostly, herding, yeah. ca herding cows through the woods from one farm. He had a number of different farms that he rented, and so he would have to move them through the woods from one farm to another. And so a lot of our time was spent just moving cows. I'd have to go out every morning and count the cows. Made sure none um, of them just got lost. Yeah, and taking care of them and just, you know, calving time was a big deal. And... So um, making hay, we put up a lot of hay um, and those sorts of things. So uh, I did that for a while. Then I got a job on a survey crew. And so I just had these various jobs kind of looking for something to do. And I could have gone to survey school. Um, I thought of getting an agriculture job, maybe move to Manitoba and get a job on a farm. There's a lot of things that I would have done. And then a friend of mine was going to university and he was doing quite well. That was UBC, uh, not UBC, uh, UNB. He was doing quite well, and I thought I was, uh, I was smarter than he was, and he was getting A's and B's, so I could probably do that too. Maybe I could kill four years by going to university. And at this time, I was 22. So I looked around at different programs, and I didn't have a high school diploma, so that was a an issue, problem, I would imagine. An issue. Um, I did get a GED, which is pretty straightforward. I was smart. It wasn't any problem. Um, and then uh, University of Guelph had a, what they call the mature student program. So they would let you take courses, but you weren't accepted into the program. You got to prove yourself. You got to take courses. If you got a B or higher, C plus or higher, whatever it was, they would then accept you into the program. Yeah. So that's what I did. I went to the University of Guelph. I took the money I earned at the survey crew, working for a survey crew. And there's stories there, um, crazy stories. Um, and uh, I just went to university and then found my place that 
felt like home. And I really liked the studying, and I ended up taking English, falling into English. Um, and uh, then my parents moved from New Brunswick to Ottawa, and I kind of ran out of money. I thought I could go live with my parents for a year and get back on my feet. So I went to Ottawa to stay with them, and I ended up transferring to Carleton University. And at Carleton University, I started in English, and then there was a cross-listed film studies course with English. And I went to my first film studies course, and the first day in the first class, I thought, oh, my God, this is where I need to be this is it. And it's not that I loved, uh, I wasn't a film buff. Of course I watch movies. I like movies, but I wasn't a film buff. Um, uh, but what they were doing was critical theory. What they were doing was not what the English, you know, the English department then still was, let's read about the author's life and look at their letters and then interpret their novels through that lens, through the, the lens of the author. And what film studies provided was this kind of critical theory stuff that I've already been expressing is that, you know, let's talk about ideology, let's talk about how films work in, the re in relation to the rest of culture, how do they express values. Feminist film theory was just like taking off at that time, and so there's all this great feminist film theory I was reading, and uh, I just fell in love with critical theory, and I just kept going, and then a prof said, you know, you're doing really well, um, maybe you should think about doing a master's, because... Um, an undergraduate isn't worth that much and you could get a master's easily and it's just it's just two years and it'll put you that much farther ahead so i said okay so i applied to the university of iowa which was like the best film studies program in north america at the time or considered one of the best and so i went off to iowa and got a master's degree at iowa and came back with a master's back to ottawa i was living in ottawa at the time and um was was working for my father who had a computer business and I was doing training and stuff and then um, I uh, got a phone call from Brock University saying we heard you got a PhD from University of Iowa and I said no it's just a master's well we just lost a faculty member maybe you should come teach so I went down and interviewed with them and ended up getting a job teaching at Brock University and then from there I applied to teach at Queens uh, teaching at Queens University so I did two years there and then I recognized if I wanted and I love teaching that that was my calling and so I recognized that I needed to get a PhD to continue this teaching gig thing that I had so I ended up going to the for various reasons I ended up going to the University of Pittsburgh I, I mostly fell in love with the city of Pittsburgh and uh, they had a good program there and it was new and fresh and they had a lot of young faculty a lot of young uh, female faculty so it was a really great place to be and um, I got my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh and then came here started a family, and then came, moved to Vancouver because we wanted to get out of Pittsburgh, and uh, ended up here, and I ended up at SFU. Wow, that's quite a story. Yeah. Been around. So, um, that was my whole life story. Is, was that the question? Was, what's your life story, Jody? Uh, that, kind of. Yeah, okay. Kind of. Um, I, I, would, I would love to, to hear a story about surveying. Was there anything that was oh, surveying. particularly formative or like... Really, uh, really a lot of, It was just a lot of weird stuff. You know, the first day of the job, there was five feet of snow in the woods. Yeah. We're talking central, central New Brunswick. And uh, I was handed an axe and a file and a pair of snowshoes. <laughs> and they said, go. And I could, handle a, I could handle a splitting axe, but I didn't know how to sharpen an axe. They taught me how to sharpen an axe with a file. Uh, I had never been on snowshoes before. So I just strapped on these snowshoes. Off we went in five feet of snow. 
And my job was to cut line for the surveyor. And this is, you know, before satellites and all that other stuff yeah, where you, you had a you, compass. You, 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 you look at the trees, you make a line. You, you make a line. So you way. cut a, you, we cut a six foot swath through the forest so that the surveyor had a clear vision, yeah. you know, stepped. That's uh, what my boss's dad used to do for yeah, work. Yeah. So I would take this axe and I kept it razor sharp and I would just cut out all the little trees, not the big trees, but the little trees and brush to give the surveyor a, a, so we would go ahead with snowshoes and, and just make it make and a cut line. lines yeah and it was a, it was just a weird experience because it was rural new brunswick and it was all crown land he was a surveyor for the crown so it was re-establishing old boundaries okay re-establishing boundaries and of course every time it was weird it's like farmers and landowners have the sixth sense when the government shows up they somehow know it and so every time we went in the woods some landowner would come up you know, why are like, you on my what are you, what are you doing? Who are you guys? It's like, we're surveyors. This is, you know, crown land. We're reestablishing the property line. He said, well, you know, my grandfather told me the property line was hundred yards. That way. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, we pretty much, no, no, no. The line. And so it was just, you know, and then, and we had to find evidence for old lines, which is and the surveyor was this master. He was just amazing. So he would, so to, to mark crown land, you blaze every tree on the line blaze blaze. So you, cut the bark off okay and you paint it with red and only the government uses red say so this is our our line and then on the corners we would have to make a cedar post so we'd cut a cedar tree down and we'd square it up and the surveyor would use this little tool to mark it and he would mark um uh like the date um maybe his name or something um uh and what the property was i don't yes what the, the little the, corner post little corner post and then we'd make a we'd put it in the ground we put a rock current around it um and that would la the cedar post would last for years and years cedar's amazing stuff the cedar's amazing stuff but it doesn't last forever and often we were into these places where there was no rocks so you couldn't build a rock current so if you're out surveying what counts so he can use his compass and he can use the the map and he can generally find where the line is but none of that really counts what really counts is what's on the ground so it's all about finding evidence on the ground for that line. And that's indisputable. The landowner can't say anything about that. Because here's like, the line. That's we found the evidence. Yeah. So I remember we were at this one corner, this odd corner, it was this, you know, forest of hemlock trees and it was quite dark and there was no car, rock car and we knew we were at the corner. And so he would just he wandered around and he would just be kicking in the dirt. And he, he would he reached down and picked up this fragment and there was just a little mark on that fragment and that was all that was left of the corner post and he found it he said put the post here so we put the post there and as soon as we had that point then we could survey all the other lines out according to the plan wow it's like how did you find that it's a needle needle in a forest yeah and another time we were doing lakefront property so a foot here a foot there is crucial yeah because it's so valuable and so um, I remember we kind of knew where the line was and we went to this thick forest and we could see the old blazes. The blazes grow over. So they, they get preserved in the tree and you'll see a line in a tree and then you'll cut into that tree, find the blaze. Now, you know, that's where the line was, you know, 50, 70 years ago. And I remember we were on this thing and there was this huge cottonwood tree or alder tree or something, G gigantic tree. And so we're looking around it and around it, and the surveyor sees this faint, faint line. It's in there. It's in there. Get your axes out, boys. And so we started cutting into this tree, and we cut deep, 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 into this far into the tree. And 
inside it so was a blaze like a foot in yeah a foot into the tree wow right because from because it had grown out can't really see it eight inches i don't know what it was it was deep into this tree yeah and you get deep into the tree and we opened it up and there it was a blaze with the surveyor's name in the tree the date in the tree preserved in the tree wow. the date everything was there there it is there's the line that's where it's gonna go right there and so then you survey everything else from there wow and then we went to the other side and we found these older trees and they were small because it was a d thick dense forest so the trees weren't growing as much like this big tree was up in the sun yeah these other little ones and so you'd cut you'd only have to cut in a few inches to those trees and you'd find the blaze so you'd find the line and then that was that was great it's very cool yeah Seems and like some and we run into some weird characters and there were some squatters there's always squatters around and squatters? yeah so the people would um just build a cabin on crown land oh yeah all, and they did that all the time and if they lived there for a number of years uh, 10 years or something and no one bothered them then that was their land they could claim the land and so that was fine with the province the province didn't really care but they got an acre and only an acre right and so we our job would be in there'd be like a whole family with a line of cabins would be like four or five cabins and each cabin gets an acre and so we would have to then figure out we'd put the line between center between the cabin and then go far back enough so they get their exact acre but they got an acre no more no less and they knew where their acre was because we went in and he would say blaze the crap out of it and so we would go we just built this we would just just a big red every box. tree a big red box around everything like that's your acre you can have your acre no more the rest is is the crown so that was that was always fun and interesting did you have any squabbles with people because of that no people would come all the time and they would keep calling the surveyor back and try to show them where the line really was but they could never really come up with the evidence and there's a stone wall with a tree line on the line <laughs> yeah it says it on the plan there's like gigantic trees in a line and a stone wall and they're saying, oh, no, that's not the property line. <laughs> the property line is over there somewhere. My grandfather told me. And uh, it's like, yeah, no. no. This, is, this, is, this is fair. So. I mean, you, you do have the crown behind you. So it's, it's, it's uh, <laughs> the heavy hand of the government. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's a heavy hand uh, indeed. Yeah. So I'm, I always love asking people this question. But um, if, if, if you didn't become a communications professor, uh, where, where do you think you'd be? No, I have no idea. No idea. I almost went to sea. I almost went to forestry school. Would you still be still be in the woods somewhere as a farmer oh. or a, or? Oh, a, I think a, a so. I think I person? probably would have gotten some kind of outdoor job. I think I would have. Uh, I did have the opportunity to go to forestry school. My uncle kind of talked me out of it because he worked for the Forest Service for many years. I was and, like, don't do that. Well, he yeah, because he, he said what he told me was, you know, your job working for the American Forest Service is to lay out roads for loggers to destroy the forest you love so much. That is kind of unfortunate. And so he really talked me out of doing that. So I, I didn't. I, but I, I, very, I came very close to going to forestry school and just staying in Montana. And, you know, I don't know where I would have ended up eventually, but I would have become a forester. And I, I would have been, that would have been great. By yeah. Me. So, <laughs> no, I, I think that's a valid answer <clears throat> somewhere Farmer, outside. probably not. <laughs> it's a very difficult way to make a living. It's a hard life to live. It is hard, yeah. So, and I learned the hard way, you know, I learned, I knew you, you were, you I were knew what was involved farm. with farming. I Absolutely. see all these young people now going off, you know, COVID I times, I'm going to go be a farmer. It's like, yeah, I've been there, done that. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> um, sorry. I just thought of a question and then it escaped my mind. No, I'm sorry. I would love to think, no, it's okay. Don't apologize. It's just my own, my own mind messing with me. Um, 
Well, if it comes back, I'll, 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 I'll re-say it. Sure. Because, of course, the more you try and think of something, the harder it is to come up with it. So I would love to talk a bit about exercise and activity. Oh, um, okay. I know that you're quite the cyclist. Yes, I've been a cyclist since 1985. It's a lot of years sitting on a bicycle. Yeah. A lot of time, too. So ah, I got a lot of saddle time. <laughs> where, where does your love of sitting on a bike uh for for some ungodly amount of hours come from it's it's like it's flying i mean you're a cyclist yeah 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 it's flying it's 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 as close as you can come to flying and still be connected to the earth by gravity you know and so i i just always loved it it's it's great exercise i could never run my feet i have like fallen arches so running was never really a possibility um, I don't know. I just got into it. It's I just, all in your mind. Don't I just limit fell yourself, into Jody. It. But I remember, you know, I bought my first 10 speed, as we used to say. In yeah. The, in the Two and 70s. five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 19, oh, here we go. What was it? 73, 72? 72, 73. I bought my first 10 speed with my paper route money. And uh, I never went back. And I was, I got us overweight. And so it was a good way to get exercise. It's um, a great way to get exercise. Great exercise because it's not, it's not hard on your body. Yeah, it's not weight bearing. Though it is important right. to bear weight. Well, and it is, it is, I mean, you cycle for a lot of years and you get tight hamstrings. Oh, yeah. You, there, is a, there is a price to pay. Absolutely. So that's how I got into cycling. I've always just been into cycling. And it's on and off over the years. In Pittsburgh, I cycled less because I didn't have, there, there wasn't, I guess there was a good place to cycle, but it was difficult. And I was busy at school. But, um, and then when I moved to Vancouver, I immediately just started. I mean, Vancouver is such an incredible place for it. But I really started in Ottawa when I lived in Ottawa. And so you have the Gatineau Hills right outside the city. Yeah. And it's like the most beautiful place to ride. Probably one of the most beautiful places. Well, Mount Seymour is pretty good. Pretty nice. (laughs) Um, uh, And that's just like three times what. Gatineau Hills were, but Gatineau Hills were beautiful. Yeah, that's the we thing encountered about Ontario. bear. It's pretty freaking flat, deer. isn't it? Yeah, and it was just beautiful hardwood forest, and you'd go up to the top of this beautiful cliff and had this beautiful view of the Ottawa Valley. Gatineau Hills are gorgeous. It's easy to fall in love with. It's easy to fall. So that's where I fell in love with cycling, really. Well, that's a good answer. Yeah. Um, as, as, as people in the endurance communities often say, uh, are, are you biking away from something? Uh, no, I'm biking to something. Yeah. Yeah. Myself? biking to myself that's how i found myself and it's it is that it is that flow that zone of being present and you just focus on i get focused on my breath it's very meditative meditative your heart rate your breath and the world around you which is often nice absolutely it's beautiful traffic i can only eliminate the traffic it'd be it'd be absolute bliss one thing with biking as well as running anything where you're moving forward through space it puts you into yeah. this this optic flow sure. where your eyes scan it's yeah. very calming for your yeah. brain yeah 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 um so no that's that's a that's a fair it answer. makes me feel more human that's that's, that's a that's a great does. way to even put. though it's you know an expensive sport it is well it it, is. it's as expensive or as cheap as you want it to be you can right. go pick up some old beater bike for sure. 50 bucks on craigslist but and you can't commute. go up mount seymour on that that's the thing yeah it's true it's, it's not the same mountain, thing but it's not the same thing yeah and i when i taught it at burnby mountain it was great because i could commute every day lots of biking lots of biking and i'd get i i go to lecture just blasted with oxygen <laughs> you know it was great all the endorphins felt, in your brain yeah you have a big cup of coffee and go for your bike ride go that's, for a bike ride like have another cup ride? of coffee is that an hour ride it's an hour ride it's 60 minutes just right. under 60 on yeah, a good yeah, day yeah. it depends on what bike i took too but definitely 
It, it's always yeah. depending on the day because I, I love biking right. to school when the weather's nice. It's, it's yeah. one of my favorite parts. It saves me a lot of time. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. If if um if I'm on a good day, I can make it in like just under half an hour. But most days it's like 35, 40 minutes. Yeah. It just yeah. depends on on. on and your, I always took field. my time coming home. Yeah, it's I mean, all downhill. You get the big bomb from the mountain. It's yeah. really fun. It is. Yeah, except it's very fun. You know, late November. Gets a bit icy. Two degrees, raining. That's unpleasant. Yeah. The rain stings your face. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I don't so, bike in this weather. But then I always feel when I get through that and I get home and I'm nice and warm, it's like, oh, that was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, well, I feel proud that I've accomplished something. I think that's in a way how it brings you to yourself. It kind of like makes you suffer. Yeah. Yes. It's a lovely in way a good to way. suffer. In exactly. Good way. Yeah, well, the, well. It's physical suffering and that's, that. you know, it's good for you. It's like inoculation. Right. Exactly. Um. Are, are there any other sports or hobbies that, that you're I rather do. passionate about? I've, I've, I've always been a, a canoe tripper since the 80s. Um, my dad had a nice uh, chestnut seat, uh, wooden canvas canoe that I used to borrow. And we used to go camping in North, when I lived in Ottawa. We camping in north of Ottawa. And then we started going to Algonquin Park. I, I built a canoe. I built a cedar strip canoe. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was we used that in Algonquin Park. And it was a beautiful, fast canoe. It's still in Ontario. Um, then I moved out west, out here, and you, know, you could still canoe. There's lakes and things, but of course it's all about sea kayaking. So I've been gradually over the years getting more and more into sea kayaking, more and more professional about it because it's it's a whole other level than canoeing. Yeah, I mean the ocean's a, a <laughs> it's it's very a hell of a place. It's, it's a dangerous, dangerous. Oh place. yeah, and uh, it's it's it is really a whole other level. And uh, over the years, our trips have gotten longer and more arduous and further and. Um, you get better and better equipment. I now will not kayak without a dry suit. You know, compass charts, everything. So the whole kit, the whole kit. It's like my cycling. Mountain equipment but co-op I, must be happy. Yeah, and it, but it keeps me safe. Absolutely. And, I mean, safety is the number one thing. Yeah, and we've had some. We've had one particularly bad experience. Yeah. Of an injury and had to evacuate with That's no always... radio, and it was it was a it was it was scary. That must be very scary. Mm-hmm. What what happened? Just uh, uh, one of our party broke her rib. Oh man! And couldn't paddle. And we were twenty miles from the little village, and the radio wasn't working because of the terrain, so we couldn't call for help. So ways to paddle with no. And rib. it was storming. It was storming terribly, like huge waves crashing up on the beach all night long while she's suffering in the tent. So it, no one slept, and so we had to evacuate the next morning. So as soon as the seas died down enough, we launched in the surf and got the hell out of there. Two of us we took our two strongest paddlers, and we went full bore for four hours and did 20 kilometers in four hours back to the village wow and then the rcmp weren't answering the the rcmp rescue wouldn't answer the phone um the uh first nations communities rescue wouldn't answer the phone (laughs) so we found someone's oh my cousin just came in from fishing (laughs) so we went down and talked talked to the cousin and the cousin said sure i'll take you back so took us back on the fishing boat and uh, rescued us. And we had to get two kayaks and all our gear and an injured person back to the village. But so we left it, I think it was nine or 10 in the morning when the seas were calm enough. And we got her in the nice warm cabin by 6 p.m. Wow, good work. It was quite an ordeal. Yeah, I would imagine. But, uh, and only because I had a dry suit was all that. Kind of oh yeah, awesome. if you got it have been really sprayed tough in the wetsuit getting Yeah, and we had to load all our gear onto this fishing boat, which is very difficult because fishing boats aren't made to throw gear onto no. it's not like a skiff. 
So I only had to get the kayaks up. So I was in a dry suit. I was in a chest. He couldn't get near the shore because he's a fishing boat. So yeah. It, had to be in, it all had to be done in chest, chest deep water. You're happy for the dry suit. So I had a dry point. suit. I stayed warm and toasty the whole time and dry. So it was great. It's a good recommendation. Yeah. Um, so as, as you mentioned earlier, you, you're involved with the Strathcona Garden going That's there right. tomorrow. Yeah. I, would, I would love to, to, to um, talk into that. Uh, so what, what got you involved when you came here? Uh, my brother was already part of the garden, and um, I had this farming experience. I had gardening, and I knew it was great. And I had a young daughter um, who was you know, in elementary school at the time, and I thought this is an important value uh, that I can instill in my daughter, that food doesn't come from the supermarket, that food can be grown. And even though she didn't participate in the garden, I always bragged at the dinner table, hey, Nina, shout out. I always bragged at the table, hey, this was, I grew this in the garden. I would say proudly, this salad came from the garden. This meal is 100% from the garden. And uh, so that's, I think, was, was the motivating. But also gardening is, like again, a deeply human, humanizing experience. There's something in our DNA that compels us to care for other living things, that compels us to work in the soil. Because we've been farming for how many thousands of years now? long time a long time and i couldn't it's, tell you it's it's in us it's in us and absolutely I, just working i an hour in the garden is the best therapy i've ever had yeah oh yeah it's way better than sitting with a therapist so it's just calming and you're working with the soil and again it's that i keep coming back to this yeah yeah flow the flow uh, it's just fun i just fun like getting my hands dirty i like working in the soil i like making compost it's really fun Composting is yeah, fun. and I my garden it's kind of half-assed, but I have my successes and failures. Truly, probably fifty fifty percent, but the fail the successes are great. I know? mean, half the time it works one hundred percent of the time, so it's pretty good. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes the beans are great, sometimes they aren't. The beans. Something's always good. Something's always always works. Yeah, something always grows well. For sure. Cabbages, um, you know, whatever. <laughs> I guess. Uh, and, and it's a nice community and it's in my neighborhood and i know all my neighbors i know a lot of my neighbors because of the garden there so is it's there, a, there's a social element there's an amazing community there yeah, it's very it is. cool it's with a little really hut great. and everything oh yeah so we have all this stuff and 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 then there's uh common work to do and i really enjoy that so we're building steps tomorrow up into the herb garden we have to rebuild the steps so that's a big job um it's a lot of work yeah put in the timbers um have to repl- re- replace half the roof on the shed yeah so that'll be a job so cool stuff like that um uh, as you mentioned instilling values in, into children uh-huh. i think that's very important yeah and um I, I guess i'm curious as to if your education and your critical thinking has influenced how <laughs> you've you've raised nina and if if, if you've put I, I mean obviously you've put conscious thought into it as as a as a parent does but um i, I guess like have you learned any any valuable lessons from from your experience um i don't know uh you know, I, I've been teaching younger people yeah, for years and years because I teach university. So I teach 18 to 24-year-olds. Um, I think that helps with now that my daughter is that age. Um, I, I think it helps me relate to her to some extent. Um, but you, you, the question was, was critical thinking. I, I guess, um, I don't know. Fair. I just, I, I, I always say, I, I always joke and say kids today. Uh, so um, when someone says kids today, in whatever form it takes, and it, you see, you hear it a lot, 
you know, kids today or this generation or Generation X. These kids. These kids. Or Young they're all on the nowadays. internet. You know, what an internet generation. Whenever you hear that from old people, I'm here to tell you, ignore everything that they say after that because it's complete and utter bullshit. Okay, so when you hear kids today, stop listening because you're not going to get anything good. Kids today are great. They always have been. Every generation is like better than the next. And I've always thought my students were awesome people. Awesome people. I mean, there's people I didn't, some students I wasn't fond of, but in, in general, in the main, um, every generation seems to be smarter and more um, diverse and more uh, uh, tolerant than the generation before. And That's I've really true. enjoyed being with young people and, and, and exposing them to critical theory and, uh, 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 and, and, and watching them sort of see their eyes open to these things. And it's, all, it's always been really, 37 years of that, it's always been really rewarding. I just remembered the question I forgot. Oh, what was the question? Um, what is it about teaching that's so special? Uh, that, that's, what's, that's what's so special. Um, it's, I, I, I have a love of critical theory. I have a love of popular culture. Um, and those two are always like held in tension. And I love that tension. I love loving something and yet really being critical of it. There's just something about that. It's like, so I'm critical of advertising and I will take an ad and I will take it apart piece by piece and expose it for what it is and expose its ideological work for what it is. But I love it. Like I love a good ad. I could, I could watch GoPro ads all day long. I, I, I I, I go on the I go on the Levi's website and I just watch ad after ad after ad and I love them. Ads are great because they're 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 there's more money put into a thirty second ad than a thirty minute sitcom. Yeah, right. There's they more put money a lot of put money, into a thirty money second ad effort than this and, hour and a half podcast and technology. Yeah, technology into putting it together an ad. They're great little stories. Tell a story in thirty seconds. Go ahead and try. It's hard to tell a story in 30 seconds and yet ads do it they tell whole complete stories and they even transfer meaning transformation yeah and they transfer meaning and they do all that great work and mm. so i love it slash i'm critical of it so and that's what that's what i loved about film studies i'd watch these movies that i loved and yet i would be critical i would watch these melodramas from the 50s you know it's like oh my god this is like so amazing rock hudson jane wyman wow and then jeez <laughs> How, how are women represented in this? Like, look at the camera, look at up and down, you know? It's the male the, gaze. The male gaze. Well, how does that male gaze operate? Like, where's the female protagonist here? Yeah. Actually, there are female protagonists in uh, Douglas Sirk, 1950s melodramas. That's, what, that's why we love them. The rare few. Yeah. So, I, um, yeah. So that's what I loved. I love, I love imparting, sharing my love of theory, uh, my love of critique, and my love of popular culture. Cool. That's really, it's all, it's really about love. So, and I've always loved love. my students. So it's all about love. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> no, I, lo- I like that answer. You, you already answered it before I asked it, but you saying it, the answer made me remember the question. So I figured I'd ask it. Yeah. There you um, go. So what, what, what is it about gardening? And I know you also have taken an interest into mycology. The little little mushroom section. Yeah, we grow. Yeah, so we got garden. into growing mushrooms. That's so much fun, and it's they're different than plants. That's what I like about them. You know, mushrooms they're more are, like us. They are more like us, and they have their own timeline, and they do what they want. Plants are predictable. <laughs> you know, they, you put the seeds in the ground in the spring. They grow at a certain rate. You look, you look on the seed pack. It says, you know, 
harvest in 37 days. It's like how, <laughs> 67, 69 days. It's like, oh my God, that's pretty predictable. They got it down to the day. They got it down to it too significant. Exactly. And, 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 and mushrooms are just wilder than that. Mushrooms, like you put them in a log and you might get them this year. You might get them next year. You might get them in the spring. You might get them in the fall. The mushroom's going to decide when it's going to fruit. And I just, you know, the whole mycelium and the communication, and you start reading about mycology. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Incredible. So growing mushrooms is really rewarding. Um, and again, we do it kind of half-assed. We have our successes. We have our failures. Mm-hmm. You have a bucket in the back on your porch with mushrooms that are ready to harvest. Isn't that great? It's incredible. Out of actually. straw, out of like garbage. So um, Sada, for, straw, will produce food. For context, um, Jody here invited me to a little seminar hosted at the Strathcona Community Gardens um, with a mycologist. And we had all this straw and sawdust spawn inoculated with um, these oyster mushrooms. I believe they're K1 oysters. And um, basically just talked about mushrooms. And then we, we got to make our own buckets. So I have a, 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 a 10 kilo pail stuffed to the brim with straw with all these tiny holes drilled in it. And I have all these beautiful oyster mushrooms. They're fully grown. At least one They're or two of them emerging are. out of the holes. Yeah, that's what I—a quarter-inch hole and like whole mushrooms just kind of flow out of that little hole. It's incredible. How do they do that. They're, They're so smart. And you know, the mushroom body is 100% mycelium. Absolutely. Yeah, and so you could just take a little piece off it. You put it in the liquid culture. Liquid culture, and it just grows, and you just I ramp a, it up into. I have a liquid culture jar right now for that oyster mushroom. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm keen. I think it's so cool. I, I yeah. I just I just mushrooms are just a whole other dimension in gardening, and it's so different than growing plants. Totally, but um, uh, it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any are there any species or or ways that people can incorporate gardening with mushrooms or like mycology products? Yeah, you can. Life? Yeah, you can do. It. You can buy a kit. Um, you can find these workshops around where people will set you up with a kit. Um, there was a woman, Allie. I don't know if she's still around. She had a van and. She had funding to go around and do much mycology workshops out of, out of the back of her van Whoa. and send people home with little bags of straw or whatever sawdust to grow mushrooms in. You can grow mushrooms. That's a great thing, too, is you can grow mushrooms right on your kitchen counter. You can do it in your house. You don't need sun. You don't need a yard. You don't need anything. You just need some garbage and some mycelium in that garbage. And it, it is a bit of a process because you have to finicky. sterilize and they, they often get, you know, You get the wrong mushrooms growing in your yeah. mushrooms. You get contamination. Because there are other uh, fungi out there who would happily take over from your mushrooms. All that black or blue mold is another fungus. So they're always competing. So you just give your mushrooms a good start and they should be okay. Yeah. So um, So what, what was that question that was? Oh, um, I, I guess what I was wondering is um, that, that's a, how, how can people incorporate it? So like if, you, if you're just a gardening or whatever, like. Uh, what's something you could do? Where would be a good species okay, so to throw in your a, here's, garden? Here's, here's what I did last year, or year before last, and it worked out great. So I have a brick path in my little plot, 14 by 21 plot, and um, we have these garden giants, or King Strafaria. Excuse me, it's a very aggressive, easy-to-grow mushroom, and they grow huge or ginormous they don't taste great they're not like the oysters but they grow and they're easy to grow and it's a great thing to start with and if you pick them young they're quite delicious they have a lot of water you have to cook them for a long time um so all i did was i took some uh chips that were my already myceliated and i took up all my bricks because the bricks sink down every year and so you have to lift them up and i put wood chips underneath to lift them up i inoculated those wood chips with king strafaria 
just sprinkled a few myceliated chips in with the fresh chips that I put under the path and put the bricks on top. And then every time it rained, after six months or whatever, big mushrooms would come right out of the bricks. So it was great because I could make the brick path productive. It's a part of the garden. It's a part of the garden as opposed to just dead space. And you can eat well from it. And you can eat well from it. And they, but you have to get there every day because they grow so fast. We had a big, um, we grew that we started with King Strafaria, and we had a big bin of them, and we had to harvest twice a day. Wow. Yeah, they grew so fast. That's crazy. And we had to keep ahead of the slugs. I guess the slugs <laughs> will want them yeah. just as much as yeah. you do. Yeah. So you'd, 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 I would go in the morning and pick mushrooms, and I'd go in the evening and pick mushrooms. Wow. They're, it's incredible. It's when they get cool. going, it's just just snow stopping them. Yeah. So. Um, so that's how people can start. Just get a kit. Get a kit. And they're, they're around. You can order them online and grow them on your counter and try that and then just expand and learn how to do it. But it takes a pressure cooker and it takes... It's a process. It's a process. And, and um, at, at least in uh, you, you, the way that I've been experimenting with it has been in little jars that you can pressure cook. Yes. And uh, yeah. that you can just do. You don't even need a garden for it. Yeah. You can do yeah, it in you, your house. You can do it in your kitchen. Pressure. You can do it in your kitchen. Exactly. And just, uh, just watch some YouTube videos. <laughs> YouTube's amazing. You YouTube's can learn amazing. all you, you need learn to learn know. all you need to know. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess the other thing um, I think that would be really good if, if people are curious is, is to just talk to people who are doing it. Yeah. Because yeah. it turns out people that are into mycology are usually very sharing and, and want to yeah. share that love. Yeah. It's a bunch of nerds that are just yeah. keen about yeah. what they're doing. So um, Yeah, we got you some liquid culture and did yeah. we? Did I give you? I, I can't remember now. Oh, we made some. Yeah, we made some. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's not even that hard. It's just sugar water. Sugar and water. A canning, canning, canning thing. You need a bit of tape and silicone, but it and works. A, and a syringe and a, yeah. a lighter to sterilize it sterilize all. Sterilize the syringe. But I mean, um, uh, any YouTube video, you can just learn how to do yeah. it. Look it up. Yeah. So aside from all that, and I mean, obviously, a mycelium could be one of these. Do you have any favorite projects at Strathcona? Any passion um, projects? I... I uh... Uh, no, I just build this and that. Um, I like building things more than anything. I built a bench, which was I thought was nice. And yeah, it looks very good. I, I've been building um, compost uh, panels. We have these um, movable compost bins. So there's these panels that we move around, and they are we're, they're 20 years old. They're rotting away, so we built some new ones, and that's been fun to build those. Um, I'm doing this step. Um, so I, I like doing those, like construction. I, and I've been doing the firewood, too. I, we have a big wood stove in the eco pavilion. And so, you know, the, there'd be a tree cut down in the neighborhood, and I would take my little <laughs> Volkswagen Golf and load it up with logs and then cut, uh, split it up and stack it so we'd have firewood. So I've been spending a lot of time putting together firewood, and I really enjoy that because I did that on the farm. We, did, we, had, we only had wood heat, so I had to learn how to use a chainsaw. It's a bit of, bit of a return. Wood. Yeah, so it's a bit of a return. I have those skills, and it's, like, it's nice, nice to use those skills. That's true. I mean, if you don't use it, you lose it, so it's nice. Right. Um, I heard that you guys made a big batch of apple cider. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I don't do the apples, um, but yeah, they have a cider press. And every year we have a little festival and we invite the neighborhood and they, they press the crap out of these apples. And it's like this amazing. You should invite me next time. I will. I will. <laughs> and, uh, and it tastes amazing. It's not apple juice. It's something else. It's just delicious. It's special because you grew it yourself in a way. Well, and I think the apples are they're small and they're, you know, they're not. Big sweet ones. They're not big sweet ones that. It's like grapes for wine. You want the little bitter ones that exactly. make the best wine. Right, exactly. So um, the little bitter apples make great. And, and then a bunch of people, and I'm not into this, but you know, they, they, turn, they turn into hard cider. 
delicious. They put the yeast in or whatever they do, and they make hard cider. But I, I'm not into that. But alcohol is a terrible drug. <laughs> I guess it is, but all things in moderation. That's true. Yeah. I don't think any drug is inherently bad. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's. I think it's okay to have apple cider once in a while that you make yourself. I don't think that's. A, that's a very moderate way of consuming yeah. it. I don't know. I'm a fan of cider. <laughs> of all the of all the alcoholic beverages yeah, I, out I there. Yeah, I like I like cider too. That's I like probably, wine. I like wine occasionally. Wine's, wine's pretty good. Wine's good. But, I'm not a beer drinker. Just I don't like bubbles. But that's just <laughs> is me. it the bubbles or the bitters that get you? Uh, both. Both. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. The bubbles. I, like, I don't drink. I don't drink soda for that reason. Really? The, I don't like the bubbles. Funny. That's weird. Um. So we're we're actually rolling up onto my very last question. Okay. Good. Um. I I. I, I'm just wondering if there's any message or takeaway from this conversation that uh, people that have made it this far, what, what, what would you like them to, to hear? I want them to watch ads more carefully. It's <laughs> a good takeaway. Um, I, I don't have advice for people, I don't think. Don't take advice from old dudes like me. That's well, why my, not? That's my advice. I, I yeah, think because uh, I, anyone older than you has, knows something you don't in a way. Yeah, you'll get there. That's true. It's fine. So I'm not going to tell people what they should and shouldn't do, I don't think. So... Find your find your bliss. Find your find your thing, and or things, and pursue it. And I've I've never I I have these little passions here and there, and I've gone in many different directions in my life. I've never had a straight. My life has never been a straight path. I think that's been obvious. Yeah. Um. So you know, follow your instincts. Follow whatever paths lead you. There's there's not there's not one path that you need to be on. Yeah. In life, and take different paths. You know, Try lots I'm, of things. Yeah, and I've you know I've had these various jobs and I've done different things and I've been teaching for a lot of years and now I'm not teaching and now I'm on to other things. Now I'm building things and it's great to be able to, and I have stories. Okay. Here's my advice. Here's my advice. When you're older, you want to have some good stories. And I've got a lot of good stories because I've had all these amazing experiences, hermits in the woods, roosters, cows, calving disasters, um, bears, you know, getting almost getting knocked over by a sea lion in a kayak. I have good stories. Rescuing I someone. Some yeah, of course. Rescuing you told someone. some great ones. So I have good stories. And I think that's, uh, I feel like I have a life well lived because I've got good stories. I like that. So that would be my advice. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been great. It's, it's been so fun. fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm so glad we got to do this. Yeah. I'm glad the hiatus is finally yeah. over. Yeah. Life, life has been pretty hectic. Um, I got, I was going to do episodes, then I got COVID. And then the whole new wave started, and then my guests were like, you know, it's kind of the middle of a yeah. pandemic. We should probably yeah. win. I'm like, you know, you get it. New relationships and everything. It's sure, fun. sure. Yeah. So um, shout out, by the way. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's been nice. So I want to say thanks. Yeah. I have some people I like thank to thank you. at the end of all my episodes. Sure. Uh, first of all, big thank you to you. I'm very glad we could do this. You're welcome. Take my some pleasure. time out of your morning. My pleasure. Um, I want to say thanks to my friend, my dear friend, Reiner who helped me do all this setup. That's why it doesn't look terrible. Yeah, but thank you. very pro. Thank you, Reiner. I mean, it's as pro as you can get for a bunch of lights from Valley Village. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and a big mess. Um, I want to say thank you to my friend Sam Mitchell for helping me make some beautiful theme music. I want to say thank you to my friend Eldritch, Eldritch Lucero, who made my, my logo and my cover art that I'm using at the moment. I'm very grateful that I get to have a brand and an image for that. I want to say thank you to my dad who helped me get some of this gear, um, as well as his friend Gord, who this microphone belongs to, but he doesn't know that. <laughs> and uh, most importantly, I want to say thank you to my mom, who is my only sponsor, uh, officially. 
Shout out. Oh, one more person. My friend Noah. My friend Noah. Uh, he's the only reason I can edit these. He's letting me use his editing yeah, software. Great. So I love you all. I'm gonna. I, I, can we get a little round of applause for my mother? <laughs> Thank you, mom. Thanks, mom. Shout out to the moms. You did a great job. You did a great job. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I do. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, thank you for listening. If, if you did make it this far, uh, thanks. Please do the YouTube things. Like, interact with this content. If you liked it, give it a like. Um, please subscribe. Subscribe. Yeah, come on. Check it out. Check out Jody. Please do. That would be awesome. And uh, I don't know. I'll see you next time whenever the urge to do one of these comes, comes through. I hope it's soon. Thank you. Start, start yoga. Young man, start when you're young. I already do yoga. Good. Oh man, that came out right through me. I was dying for the last little bit. That was great. That was so good.